Bingo, bango, bongo. Welcome to Esoterica and Nonsense, a podcast in which we discuss myths, legends, folk tales, fairy tales, supernatural phenomenon, and religions from around the world. I am your host, Annabelle, Dreamweaver, Visionary, and I'm here on a beautiful day. I don't even know what day it is. All I know is that it's Libra season, and Libra season is difficult for me. It's it it's like a season of sadness, but seasons no reason to change. <laughs> A lot of random references today. If you got any of my pop culture references, I applaud you. If not, that's fine too. Today is part two of Cat Deities. And this is the juiciest part two. It is succulent, full of nutrients if you will. And I've, I'm honestly, I'm honestly can't wait. I was actually thinking of making my cat deity episode extra long, but I feel like that's too long. (laughs) So let us begin. The first topic I'm going to discuss today is the Bakeneko. So I'm actually going to dive deep into some Japanese cat lore. This is like a a, a Pepe Sylvia moment where there's going to be a lot of self-referential, self-referential deities that kind of intersect and eclipse with each other, but they are in fact separate entities. So I'm going to try my best to keep it clear. We're not going to get these things mixed up. By the end of this, you're going to be, have a doctorate in cat yokai. So as I mentioned in the Kappa episode, callback, yokais are a entity of Japanese folklore. They're often classified as demons or ghosts or sprites, supernatural creatures of some kind. So it is actually a very loose term. So the bakeneko is a cat yokai. And it is often referred to as supernatural cat or kaibyo, which directly translates to changed cat. So kind of like changeling, a shapeshifter. So in Japan, cats in general, like regular cats, are actually associated with yokai because of their behavior. Their pupils change shape depending on the time of day or their mood. And if you pet them a lot, their fur can create static energy. And sometimes they lick blood. (laughs) And they prowl silently. They're agile killers. Kill silently. And they're very hard to control. And all of these characteristics overlap with yokai characteristics which I love. I love this brand. I love the cat brand. I really do. There's actually a superstition 
that if a house cat licks lamp oil, so this is like an old myth, obviously, when people were using lamp light as their primary light source, but the belief was that if a house cat was to lick the lamp oil, it would be a premonition that a bizarre event was about to occur. Now, what I learned was that it was very common, especially with, you know, uh, farmers or just common people in Japan. A lot of people used fish oil in their lamps because it was so affordable. It also burned um, a little bit quicker, but it was really cheap. They had a lot of fish oil, so it was basically really common for cats to be licking the lamp oil because it was fish oil. And often um, cats would lick so much fish oil that they thought that maybe cats were ghosts because they would wake up the next day and so much of their oil was gone. And so it kind of became a part of the cat lore that they were thieves. And that actually ties into another yokai behavior, which is yokais are known to steal household objects. So that disappearance of the lamp oil tied in perfectly with this belief that they had supernatural abilities. They were like uh, ghosts, phantasms. Cats were also associated with sex workers due to their mysterious prowess. Mm. And uh, uh, that's actually kind of hot. It was thought that a cat would turn into a bakeneko after 12 to 13 years of their life, depending on the province. So sadly, this is fucked up. Real, like, trigger warning, you guys. This is about to be really fucked up. Some brutality towards cats. It was common for people to kill their cats as their cats started getting older because they were afraid they would become supernatural changelings. However, ironically, see, this is a full circle. Humans are so silly. Ironically, many of the stories of the Bakeneko are actually about house cats seeking revenge on cruel humans. <laughs> so you just can't win. I mean, maybe this is a radical point of view, but like, let the cat become a, su a supernatural overlord. Like, again, this just feels like humans being ashamed of our lack of ability. Like, let the cat be superior to you. Let the cat morph into a shape-shifting god. Like, what's the issue here? And if you were good to your cat, maybe you would actually benefit. You're not the king of the castle, okay? You're not the queen of the kingdom. Let the cat live. Let the cat be better than you. Cats are better than me. Just saying. So, one of their most savvy abilities, like I mentioned, was the Bakeneko was known to shapeshift. And one of their greatest abilities was actually to shapeshift into a human. And this, this is like a really random tidbit, but one of their like <laughs> signature styles was to wear towels or napkins on their heads, which is pretty fucking fresh, but they were also known to dance. They could speak. And 
They were known to curse humans and they could manipulate the dead. So they could do some uh, like zombie situations, but it would all be like a ratatouille, if you will. It'll be like mind power control, manipulating dead bodies. And they could also possess living human beings. They were known to lurk in the mountains with wolves and they were known to ambush humans. I'm not mad at any of this. So during the Edo period, which was from 1603 to 1867, there was a belief that cats with long snake-like tails were known to have magical powers and they could bewitch people more easily than a regular cat. And so for this reason, it was common during the Edo period for people to chop off their cat's tails so that their cats wouldn't bewitch them. <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, again, I just, I don't know if I have any problems with all these cat behaviors. Like, I guess I don't know the context, but who who is the cat bewitching? It sounds like, I don't know, I... I we're assuming that it has negative intentions, but we don't know that. Most humans don't have great intentions. I mean, let's talk about human history for a second. How humans treat their enemies, let alone sometimes their family and their own community. We don't have the best track record. And so we're acting like, or I don't even want to involve myself, but people at this time period, we're acting like cats were by becoming yokai are inherently evil. And I think there's just no proof for that. What if their goal was actually to avenge whoever murdered them and like make the world a better place for all the plants and animals? Is that evil? I mean, I feel like it's pretty easy to construe humans as the villain here. Am I right? I don't know. So here is a classic tale. I love this tale. Um, I'm just going to give like a brief summary, but there's a famous tale of a man named Takasu Genbei. Takasu's mother had a complete personality change, like literally overnight, and it actually corresponded to the date that they lost their cat. So for many years, his mother kind of turned into a recluse and she was very short, um, as in like, she wasn't really entertaining conversations. <laughs> I have no testament to how tall she was, but she was avoiding company at all costs. She avoided visitations from friends and family members, and she took all her meals privately in her room, which is obviously very odd behavior. And this was going on for years. So, the story goes that the family decided to peek on her one day while she was eating. And what did they see? They saw a cat-like monster wearing Takasu's mother's clothing. And this cat monster was chewing on animal carcasses lit. So Takasu killed what looked like his mother and after a day, the body transformed into their missing cat. Um, so then he tore up the floorboards of his mother's bedroom and he actually found her skeleton hidden there and her bones were gnawed clean. 
I would watch this movie. I would watch this movie. I, okay, here's a wild idea. I want more movies from the perspective of the animals. Like I would love a Bakaneko movie, but it's all from the cat's perspective. I want the cat to be the main character. This is the interesting character here. Shape-shifting abilities, eating your old oppressor. I mean, I don't know what their relationship was, but I just have questions. I, I naturally side with the cat, but you know, I'm just a third-party observer here. So, that brings us to the next cat yokai, which is the Nekomata. Uh, so, okay, before I get into details, the Nekomata and the Bakeneko are very commonly mixed up. There's a lot of overlapping similarities. I don't know if you have noticed, but both of them have the word Neko in them. And neko is the word for cat in Japanese. So the bakeneko, like I mentioned earlier, comes from the word of changed cat. And the nekomata are known for being two-tailed beasts. Fun fact, if you watch Naruto, which if you don't, I highly recommend getting into it, but the two-tailed beast is a very old, this is a yokai, so there you go, boom boom, the jinchuriki. So, nekomatas are yokai, and there's two distinct types of nekomata. There are those that live in the mountains and were created as yokai, so they've been yokai forever. And then there are nekomata that were originally domesticated cats and then eventually transformed into yokai in their old age, which is, again, this is similar to the bakeneko, okay? The difference, the biggest difference, like I mentioned, is that the nekomata has two tails and it is thought that the mata portion of the word nekomata actually refers to the two tails, or it possibly refers to repetition in the sense that they transform when they're older. Um, but, you know, most likely, it probably, if repetition is the etymology of mata that's like the repetition of tales right that's what i'm that's what i'm thinking so the more dangerous ones that were really feared were considered to be the mountain yokai the mountain nekomata and they were considered to be mysterious and they were known to kill and known to consume human flesh they were said to have the eyes of a cat but a larger body, more like a dog. And they were known to be as large as a lion or leopard. And it was very common for the Nekomata to shapeshift into human form, to play tricks onto humans or to deceive them into their death or doom. And it was generally thought that a house cat would transform into a Nekomata right around their 10th birthday. There is a specific story of an old cat 
raised in a village on a mountain precipice. And this cat held a secret treasure, a protective sword in its mouth, and it ran away. So this was the protective sword of the family that it belonged to. So it ran away and the people of the village chased the cat, but it disguised itself. And this is the thought to be the Genesis story of the cats becoming monsters, of them stealing important relics and never being able to be found again. Um, so they must be transforming and they must have monstrous intentions. And for this very reason, much like the Bakenikel, many people would actually kill their cats as they were getting older. Um, and they also, some people didn't always kill their cats. A lot of people would actually amputate their cat's tail because they believed that their cat would actually sprout a second tail on their 10th birthday. And that second tail would be the telltale sign. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Tell, tell. A uh, sign that they were evil and they would start to exhibit more wild and evil tendencies. There is a tale from the Yamato Kaijiki, which translates into mysterious stories of Japan. Um, and there's a tale of a rich samurai who lived in a haunted house where multiple poltergeist activities had been witnessed. Poltergeist meaning um, objects and things moving and floating throughout the air uh, type of haunting. So over a course of a long period of time, this samurai had called the shamans and priests and people to exorcise and to evoke this poltergeist out of his house, but none of them worked. And one day, a loyal servant saw the samurai's cat carrying a shikigami in its mouth with the samurai's name printed on it. So a shikigami is actually a type of kami. A kami is like a, a deity or a spirit. And it's a conjured being. And it is made alive through a complex ceremony. So the power of this kami is connected to the spiritual force of their master. If the master is experienced in magic, their shikigami can possess animals and other people. And it is said that the master of the shikigami, if that master is in fact careless, the shikigami can get out of control and gain its own will and consciousness and eventually kill its master. So they're often invisible, but sometimes they take form as artfully folded paper or sometimes as animals. So these seem like power objects. This is actually a very common theme in a lot of cultures that practice sorcery, uh, making enchanted power objects and in, in giving a lot of your personal power into this power object and possibly harnessing outside powers. So in the story, they did not specifically spell out what form the shikigami was the cat was carrying, but it did say that the samurai's name was printed on it. So let's assume 
that the cat was carrying a shikigami in the form of some folded paper, which is powerful. Words can be spells. So this cat was carrying a shikigami in the form of folded paper with the samurai's name written on it. Uh-oh. So the loyal servant who again was this witness immediately was would not take this so he i guess immediately got out a bow and shot this cat with a sacred arrow through the head which again very prepared who is this servant versed in sorcery and has a sacred arrow on hand get out of here so apparently as the cat lay dead on the floor, everyone could see that it had two tails. After the death of the cat, the poltergeist activity ended. And I just, again, if this was a movie, make the cat the main character. I'm so tired of this trope of like whoever practices sorcery or whoever has magic abilities is the evil one and they just have to be killed on sight. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's all take a step back. I don't really care about any of these human characters. I want to know about this cat's life. This cat is main character energy and I want to know about its journey of attaining these magical abilities to start creating Shikigami and uh, like basically just start hauntings this is iconic and um i mean again question did the owner of this house deserve it i mean i don't really know his life um, but he was a samurai so that means he did have probably a pretty high body count who's to say if a little polter you know i mean i don't know maybe this cat was actually trying to teach him a lesson like stop killing people because these are the the ghosts of the people you've killed or like hey maybe you didn't give me enough attention when I was a kitten and all I've wanted was like a loving father like I don't know I don't I, we don't know okay <laughs> all I know is that cats are better than me and this is just bad bitch energy and I'm 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 tired of this trope across the board. Like even in human stories, the witches are always evil. I don't really care. Let's make the witch the main character. I respect Maleficent for doing that. I didn't really enjoy the films that much because they didn't really get into actual magic <laughs> because no one takes the time to read any ancient information or even current information about how people actually practice sorcery. Um, there are dark ways to do it and there's other ways to do it. And it's just all equally demonized because I think it's a human trait to be intimidated, intimidated by anything that has more power than you. And our first reaction is to murder it. Anyway, <laughs> I don't want to get political here, okay? <sighs> but we can all do better. Things are allowed to be more powerful than us. That doesn't inherently mean that they're trying to kill us. And okay, back on track. In Japan, cats were often associated with death in the first place. So this kind of checks out why a supernatural cat would really scare people because they were associated with the death realm. And nekomata specifically were often blamed and correlated to strange deaths that people had 
especially because they were known to shapeshift. So there didn't even necessarily need to be a cat present for people to blame Nekomatas for bizarre deaths or, or disasters. Nekomatas were also far more feared and considered more male malevolent and, quote, darker than most Bakeneko. The Nekomata was also said to have powers of necromancy. And after raising the dead, they would control the dead with ritualistic dances, gesturing their bodies with their paws and tail. Ah, again? Let's make a movie out of this. This is incredible. Get out of here. Nekomata are associated with strange fires and other inexplicable anomalies. The older and more abused the cat, the more power it has after it has transformed. Again, this feels like we're demonizing them because the ones that are more abused are just more vengeful and are willing to do anything to fulfill their vengeance. And I don't know, this feels pretty loaded that they're seen as evil because they literally just told on themselves that the more abused cats become more powerful and this is why we don't abuse cats, you guys, okay? If you're, oh my gosh, people. <sighs> humans, dear humans, dear every human listening to this podcast, we can do better, okay? We can all do better. The cats and the animals and all the plants are perfect, okay? Nature is beautiful. Nature can be terrifying, but we don't need to kill things all the time, okay? There's certain contexts where I guess self-defense may come into play, but on an existential level, I think it's very deep how often humans kill things to fix problems. And I wonder how often things actually needed to be killed for that, solve for that problem to be solved. And I, I pose that question to all humanity. Do we really have to kill so often? I don't think so. <sighs> so <laughs> my next note, my next bullet point is depressing, but it's, it's on the same topic. So the most powerful Nekomatas were often Nekomatas that were wronged and abused by their own master and transformed specifically to seek revenge on their own master. Again, I don't really have sympathy for the people here. Why, you know, what the fuck? But there was another kind of nekomata, which occurred sometimes, where their master could have been murdered. And once they transformed, they would seek revenge on the person who killed their master. See? So it pays to be good to cats, everyone. Be good to cats. They'll be good to you. There are some stories, this is legendary, of cats, or nekomatas, I guess I should say, shape-shifting into old women just to cause chaos. Um, that's actually my fucking dream. And the next time I see a grumpy old woman in public causing chaos, I will think to myself that it could actually just be a cat spirit having a fun day. And I'm... I really have no problem with any of this cat behavior so far. 
I mean, if you could shapeshift into a human just to cause chaos, like what, what better vessel than an old woman, you know? Like no one can like disrespect her. Everyone has to listen with all her shit. This is fucking iconic. Um, so similar to the Bakaneko, a lot of people, like I mentioned, would cut off their cat's tails thinking that their tails wouldn't actually end up forking as they got older. There is actually a belief I don't know how true or reputable this is, but through, I don't even want to say natural selection, but through human selection, cats with shorter tails were favored in Japan because they were considered less powerful than long-tailed cats. So there is a belief that short, there's, that there is a prevalency of short-haired cat, short-tailed cats in Japan because people were less likely to kill them. But like I mentioned, People were more afraid to kill cats specifically because they thought that it would curse their entire bloodline. <laughs> Again, like I just, this is so iconic because it sounds like for a while that people were terrified of cats and they were, but they were terrified to kill, they were too terrified to kill them, but they were terrified of them. And, uh, it's pretty iconic. So there is some common artwork of Nekomata, which is really interesting and beautiful. And I, I mentioned earlier that Nekomatas were often associate, associated with sex workers and specifically geishas. At one point, geishas were actually referred to as Neko, which means cat. And Nekomatas were often depicted wearing geisha clothing and they were also often depicted playing the shamisen which is a traditional Japanese instrument. It has three strings and it is played horizontally so like played on a table or on the lap and during the Edo period specifically the instrument the shamisen, was often made out of cat skins. Part of the legend is that Nekomatas would pluck the shamisen and sing sad songs about its fellow species who had died and been killed. Are you kidding me? Like, we have all everything we need to make a movie and or series. Um, if anyone wants to hire me to help consult... Um, I mean, I think it, I think we could like combine cat lore from around the world and just have some kind of animated show or even like CGI special, um, or like even like, uh, like 80 style, like homeward bound situation, um, and escape from which mountain type special effects where like, we just have cats, like just be shape-shifting icons. This is just, I'm... I'm speechless. I really, I really do feel like Nekomatas are entirely misunderstood. And from my perspective, it really does sound more like these Nekomatas are living in fear of humans and avenging the deaths of their beloved cats or even beloved humans. And I, I wonder our impressions of these creatures if we weren't as violent towards them. Right? Because it sounds like if you're good to your cat, even when it shapeshifts, it has your back. So what is there to fear? 
it really just sounds like they're traumatized and have watched their friends and family be murdered and are just trying to avenge some deaths, which is like, I don't know what's so hard to understand about that. It's not really quite villainy, is it? Anyway, <laughs> it's so interesting. Part of why I'm so fascinated in studying folklore and specifically like quote mythological creatures is that I think it's a really interesting reflection of humanity. I think a lot of the fears that people pr end up describing about creatures are actually projection and we project a lot of fears out onto creatures that seem powerful but in fact we are like perpetrating a lot of the issues you know we're like instigating arguments or or what's the word i'm looking for scenarios that become violent <laughs> and like right we're instigating violence i don't think it can be fixed overnight because i think this is a generational thing that's been happening for hundreds of thousands of years. I think it's a survival fight or flight response. So I can't necessarily blame us, but I do think it's our responsibility to look inwards and start changing our behavior because violence is so common in human culture and some of it we just don't even think twice about. Even the way we communicate with people is sometimes violent communication. And there's a reason why there's still wars happening all around the world and why people have hate in their heart and choose to take other people's lives to fix a problem. It may seem easier, but we're all hurting ourselves when we choose violence and violence isn't always explicitly physical violence. There's many other ways that violence manifests. I am an Aries. I come from a family with viking blood so violence is in my nature i do not want to sound preachy or like i'm better than other people i just think that there's a lot of personal responsibility as a human being and the power that we have um, from a planetary point of view not only to other humans but just plants and animals we have a huge effect our life has a huge footprint that changes the planet even if we don't realize that the choices that we make what we consume what we're eating affects the entire planet on a personal basis and violence is very normalized and I wonder what the world would look like in our relationships to animals and our relationships to the supernatural realm would be if we changed our relationship with ourselves and let more love in <laughs> <laughs> um I yeah I feel a little bit like a kindergarten teacher who's like why is everyone fighting I don't I, I don't know what it was it's gonna take for that message to really hit home um and I wonder I wonder what the people need to to let go of violence I don't have the answers this is just me dreaming but it would be nice Anyway, next up we have the Senri. So the Senri is actually a Chinese entity. And some people believe that the Nekomata are actually inspired by the Senri. And they're also known as the Xianli. So the Senri is a leopard cat entity and it has gained divine powers. They can take form of attractive men or women and they are known to drain the spirit 
out of humans. Ooh, so this is some vampire energy. Interesting. Uh, and again, kind of sorcery energy. It is said that a mountain cat transforms into a senri when it undergoes a spiritual transformation. Ah, that sounds beautiful. It can take form of a beautiful woman and seduce young men that wander into the mountains. And then it streams their life energy in order to sustain itself and accumulate more power. Again, that's kind of fucking awesome. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't necessarily support sucking people's souls out. I don't support that. But I'm just saying, like, at minimum, this would make a sick movie, you know, like a super hot movie. Get a super hot girl in there and she's just a shape-shifting cat. Get out of here. That's so, that's hot. So it is actually thought that other animals can become senri as well. If an animal gathers enough life energy throughout its life, it can actually transform into a senri as well. The senri are also considered to be known as a yaoxing, which is a type of animal with spiritual powers that can achieve human form after many years of training in the art of Taoism. What? Are you kidding me? Okay, here's a movie. A mountain cat that goes through a spiritual transformation, becomes a senri, and then through years of studying Taoism, achieves human form. That's a movie, Hollywood. Stop remaking all these 80s films. They were made perfectly in the 80s. Stop remaking them. In Jinhua, which is in the Zhaixing province, it is said that a cat can bewitch a human after spending just three years with them. I feel like that's true. I mean, I know cats, and once you know them for three years, I just feel like you're whipped. I just feel like they own you. Um, so yeah, I'll take it. They believed that cats with white tails were especially good at bewitching humans because apparently their magical powers of bewitching actually comes from extracting spiritual energy from the moon. <gasps> oh, so apparently cats with white tails just had a deeper connection with the moon. So they had more moon energy and they could bewitch humans. It's interesting that so much of the cattail um, is associated with their power. It's like a wand. It was said that if a cat was to look up at the moon, it should be killed on sight, whether its tails had been cut or not. <laughs> I literally just ranted about this. This is what I mean. We're choosing violence, you guys. Let's stop choosing violence. So what? Let your cat ascend. Let your cat extract energy from the moon. Like, even if your cat sucked your soul, like... Would you be worse off? Like now you're going to be part of a cat lord, a cat god. Like just allow yourself to be absorbed by the more powerful entity. Maybe that's too radical, okay? I just like, uh, I don't know. I just support the cats right now. I'm on, I'm on the cat team, okay? So next up, we have Kasha. So Kasha are also referred to, translated into English, as quote, a burning chariot or a changed wheel. Very deep. It is often depicted as a humanoid. 
slash cat demon with the head of a cat, often a tiger, and with a burning tail. So kashas are known to travel the world on burning chariots and steal corpses from funerals and cemeteries of those who have died as a result of accumulating evil deeds. Get out of town. So these, the kashas are interesting because these are like cat humanoid dudes, okay? And they seem to be coming to collect bodies who didn't, as we, as we would say in the West, didn't make it to heaven. <laughs> um, so some believe that old cats would turn into Kasha, um, but that's that wasn't always necessarily the case. And according to some people, it was believed that Kashas were actually Nekomatas. But a lot of other people considered them to be Onis. Onis are a class of Japanese demons and or ogres. And there's kind of like varying types of Onis, some that are more spiritual entities and some that eclipse more into the physical realm. Basically, either way, regardless if they're yokai or Oni, their, their signature purpose as Kasha is to carry the damned in a cart to hell. Sick. <laughs> It'd be a sick uh, like metal band poster. So... There was parts of Japan where they believed that the Kasha lived nearby. And so for this reason, people would often hold two separate funerals. <laughs> uh, so like the first funeral would be a decoy and they'd put a rock inside of a coffin to throw off the Kasha. This sounds like so expensive. Um, but other places would simply put a hair razor on the top of the coffin to prevent the Kasha from stealing the body. I mean, like not, not to rain on their parade, but like a single razor, like you would have to like, either that razor would have to be enchanted with a spell or you'd have to line the entire opening of the casket with razors because like, believe me, if I really wanted to collect a body, a single razor floating on the top of the casket, by the time I dig it up, I, I, the razor is going to be brushed off into the debris. Am I right? Whatever. Um, some people would play the mayobachi, which is a traditional Japanese instrument. And a lot of people would play this instrument during funerals thinking that it would keep the kasha away, which is beautiful. I think music does have magical powers. So there are some classic stories during funerals performed in Uida, located in Echigo. Uh, and so in these stories, a kasha appeared playing a drum, which created harsh lightning and rain. This kasha was wearing a tiger skin and it came to collect all the bodies of the dead. Sick. Um, fun fact, there's a Japanese idiom which is hai no kuruma. And there's some multiple translations uh, of, of what this really means. But in some... In some parts of Japan, they use the word kasha instead of kuruma. So sometimes it says hai no kasha. And they use it in the context uh, to be in a difficult financial 
situation or to be strapped for cash. It comes from how the dead would receive torture from the Kasha on their journeys to hell. So basically people are saying like, I'm, I feel like I'm going to hell right now because I don't have like a, a bunch of money. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's an odd um, idiom. And if anyone's listening who speaks Japanese, uh, please write in. Give me more deets on this. Also, another fun fact is that old women with, quote, sour personalities, (laughs) whatever, were known as Kasha Baba. And so Baba means old lady. So they're literally calling mean old ladies Kasha ladies, which is fucking awesome. Are you kidding me? I want to be a demon cat that collects bodies that have sinned. I want to be a Kasha lady. Get out of here. It's not even, people don't even know how to insult. It's not even an insult. It's like the highest acclaim. Okay, so my last tale is a doozy. And this fucking, this, this one blew my mind, truly. So in the Americas, Cats, and specifically big cats, jaguars or mountain lions, lynx, cats have a huge significance in native culture to the Americas. And sadly, due to colonialism, a lot of these stories have been lost because most of these communities had a very strong oral tradition and colonialism used a lot of divisive ways to destroy languages and to destroy concentrated groups of people. (sighs) But there are some really interesting overlapping ideas that are shared with a lot of native peoples around the idea of cats. And one of One of those beliefs is that cats are known to be able to travel between the two worlds, to be able to travel between the world of the living and the world of the dead. Specifically in the Mayan tradition, um, there was actually many Mayan gods that were portrayed as jaguars or like humanoids with jaguar characteristics. More specifically, Mayan gods were portrayed as jaguars or humanoids with jaguar characteristics because of the power that these jaguars held. And jaguars and gods associated with jaguars were very often connected with the underworld. In the Mayan tradition, the concept of Nahuals are... I guess like the simplest way to equate it with Western ideas is Zodiac concepts, but, or from what we understand as quote, like spirit animals, but I don't think that those, I think those are very simplistic ideas of what those really mean. And I don't, I I don't think that like the Western world has a way to even fathom what a, a Nahual really is, but the best way to describe it is that there are a series of days. So instead of months, there's a series of days that each have a totem. And these totems are archetypal energies. And you can be born under one of these days. And so you would hold 
you'd be a personality of this archetype, but this archetype is like a much greater entity that is so much bigger than the human experience. So the Pantera or the Jaguar Nahual is associated with shamans and healers. And because the Jaguars are thought to be able to cross between the two worlds and just throwing this out there because I know that a lot of people listening are English speakers probably is their first language, maybe not all of you, but a shaman is someone who is raised in a tradition where shamanism is practiced and they spend their whole life accumulating those powers. And so I have noticed a lot of people in the Western world are starting to use the word shaman very lightly and the Pantera or the Jaguar is associated specifically with the people who are chosen to be medicine people in native tribes. And anyone else who is not from that tradition is not a shaman and it's not appropriate to use that word. <laughs> um, but they may be healers of some kind and that's totally fine. They are not shamans. Anyway, so fun fact, when I was in Brazil, I learned a really interesting, oh, spooky, some birds. When I was in Brazil, I learned some really interesting things. Um, so ayahuasca is made out of two separate plants. There's actually, there's a vine and there's a bush that is cooked together and combined into a potion you know, a plant potion, and that is what constitutes ayahuasca. But each plant separately does not have the effect of releasing DMT in your brain. So what I learned was that the natives actually learned how to make ayahuasca because they would observe panteras and they would watch these great cats eat the two plants that make up ayahuasca before hunting. So the jaguars in the Amazon are tripping balls before they go hunting, which is sick as fuck. And again, plays into this idea of them being very spiritual and powerful creatures because ayahuasca is not a joke. Ayahuasca is a really... Um, I've tried ayahuasca in Brazil, and it was one of the most interesting experiences I have ever had with a substance. I didn't have a lot, but when I had my eyes open, I felt totally sober and just very light and slightly euphoric. But with my eyes closed, I felt like I was in a nebula of energy, and I felt like I could see what plants looked like on a spiritual level. And so I saw a pulsating rainbow of colors, um, more colors than I are visible in the rainbow spectrum. And they were pulsating almost like a neurological web. And I wasn't hearing voices, but I was receiving messages, like almost in thought form. And it was like I was made out of liquid light in this huge neurological system. And like the message that I received from all of this and the thoughts that were in my head were that plants, I, it's hard for me to explain, but like essentially we are an extension of plants and plants are the original life form, the original blueprint for life. 
and we think of ourselves as animals and plants to be on a different rung but in fact like we are a type of plant that is so far removed from our true form that it's hard for us to remember uh, what it really means to be alive and what our true purpose is and ayahuasca is really cool and I highly recommend um, taking it responsibly and um, taking it from people who make it properly and create proper space um, I know that it's getting kind of popular right now for people to like go do ayahuasca and I feel like the western world does a lot of things almost like a party uh, or to like be cool but um, I think it's a very personal experience and it's not to be rushed and it's not about like doing it to get high. Uh, I think it's an experience where you can shed a lot of layers of your mask of humanity and experience reality on a slightly more conceptual level. Anyway, that was a very long rant. Long story short, jaguars are known to eat ayahuasca. So, like I mentioned, the living world is associated with the day and the spirit world is associated with the nighttime. And another really big reason why jaguars are so respected is because they are the most awake at night and do most of their hunting then. And they really are kind of the king predator of the jungle. So for this reason, jaguars are often associated to be part of the underworld and to be um, amphibious, if you will, to the living world and the underworld. So that intro is the perfect setup to go into a very, very intense story. First off, I would like to mention that I am going to be reciting stories from the Populva, and this is the Mayan creation story. And as I've mentioned, I think in other episodes that the native Mayan languages, some of the biggest ones are Quiche and Kachikel. These languages are very difficult to translate into Spanish or English because they are often written very poetically and so there is not a lot of direct translations for these scripts and accounts and also a lot of the stories aren't haven't been able to be recovered in full but I just wanted to preface that because I've noticed a lot with ancient research that whatever people research they take at face value and I think it's important to remember that somebody had to translate these stories and a lot of the people who translate aren't necessarily speaking these native mind languages as their first language not all the time so there are basically this translation I don't think it's fair to say is as accurate as it could be and as I've read from different sources there's slight variations to certain details but overall I'm just going to dive into this story. I wouldn't actually have told this story because the deity I'm going to speak of, known as Shabalenki, is not fully a cat person. He has jaguar characteristics. However, 
this story is just so fucking cool. So let's get into it. So Shabalenke is a Mayan hero. He's actually part of a duo known as the War Twins. And they are a hero twin duo from the Popolva, which is the Mayan creation myth, as I mentioned. So the name Shabalenke translates into jaguar sun or hidden sun or jaguar deer. See, like already just his name has three separate translations that are like pretty different from each other. So that's what I mean. Just like keep an open mind that these translations are not perfect. So Shabalenke was known to have patches of jaguar skin and whiskers slash a beard. So as I mentioned, he's a twin. So his brother was named Hunapu. And Hunapu was known to be bigger than him. His name translated into one blow gunner. So essentially, he's a one-shot guy. He was known for his blow darts, and he had a perfect shot. And he was more of the, quote, masculine twin. He was bigger in stature. He, had a, he was right-handed. And he was described as having black spots on his right cheek and on his right shoulder and on his arms. And Shabalenke was known to be the more petite twin and he was left-handed and considered to be more feminine. So already, I think maybe people raised in the Christian church may notice that there's some similarities here to Cain and Abel, this like twin archetype. Were Cain and Abel twins or were they just brothers? It doesn't really matter. It's this similar archetype of like two brothers that are kind of opposites of each other. But the story could not be more different. So their mother was named Shikwik. And Shikwik, her name literally means blood moon or blood maiden. Which really gets me going because blood moons i i have a deep connection to blood moon i've had dreams about blood moons um i just blood moons are everything to me i love blood moons i have blood moons tattooed all over my body but enough about me <laughs> the, so their mother is named she quick and she quick's father is named shibalba okay so shibalba is a lord of the underworld and his name directly translates into blood gatherer okay so before i keep going just a reminder we're so bad at naming okay we need to get better at naming because these people have the coolest names i've ever fucking heard anyway so she quick their mother conceived the twins in a very interesting way so the story goes that the father of the twins, known as Wan Hunapu, he was also a twin. And long story short, he was defeated by the lords of the underworld in a classic game of ball. So this ball game is known as Pokatok. So 
Pocatok is a very traditional Mayan game and it's played with a solid rubber ball and heavy pads. And the objective of the game was to knock the ball with any part of the body except the hands through a stone scoring ring. So this sounds very much like soccer with maybe a Quidditch sprinkle in the, the hoop system. But this is a very important theme of this story. Okay, so the twin, these twins who are the father of Hunapu and Shibalba, they got caught up in playing a game of Pokatok with the Lords of the Underworld. And they ended up losing, and because of which they were decapitated, and their heads were planted on a tree. So, Shikwik is walking along, she's a princess of the underworlds, and she comes across a tree where she speaks to one Hunapu. And there, the rest of the tree has grown fruit, which is actually in the shape of skulls. So she is instructed by the decapitated head to pluck a skull from the tree. And as it sits atop her hand, it releases saliva. And in doing so, causes the conception of two twin boys. I'm, it, this, in some ways, reminds me of the story of Eve with the apple tree, mostly because... As she becomes pregnant and it starts to show, her father questions her on the father of the baby. And she doesn't really have an answer because she genuinely doesn't, doesn't really know. <laughs> so her dad, who is one of the lords, one of the gods of the underworld, expels her from home because she's having a bastard child. So again, she picks a forbidden fruit, which is a skull, and she's expelled from home. There's some similarities here. So eventually she pleads with her mother-in-law. She tracks down the mother of the severed head and she goes through a couple trials and proves to the mother that she is worthy of staying there and she uses some trickery. But long story short, the goddess, she quick moves in with her mother-in-law and she bears two twin sons. So once the twins were born, they had older half-brothers already, and they were living at the house with their grandmother, and on multiple occasions, their older brothers tried to kill them, <laughs> but they never succeeded. So from a very early age, the boys were kind of put in these dangerous situations because their older brothers were trying to kill them. And very quickly, they started showing that they had, in fact, supernatural powers. Long story short, they had played, you know, certain tricks on their older brothers, but it escalated one day to when they turned their brothers into monkeys. And uh, their brothers were so ashamed of their appearance that they fled home and they never returned. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, so as they grew older, they ended up discovering that their grandmother was hiding the balls for the game Pocatok that their father and uncle had once played with. So remember, their father and their uncle were also twins, and they had loved this game of Pocatok. So one day, 
they used some magic and they tricked their grandmother and their mom and they snuck up onto their grandmother's roof and stole all of the gaming equipment for Bokatok. So from that day on, they started playing in the court by their grandmother's house. And this was the same court that their father and uncle had once played on before them, which is, this is a pretty beautiful, like full circle moment. Um, it reminds me of like a lot of classic movies where people never meet their dad, but they, I don't know, it's giving me like field of dreams. <laughs> anyway, so, so the twins started playing on this very same court and actually this is very much a full circle moment because history ends up repeating itself. So as the story goes, the brothers were making so much noise above ground that it was disturbing the lords of Shibalba, which was the underworld. So the lords of Shibalba sent an owl to the above world and they invited the two brothers to the underworld for a game and for a list of trials and tribulations in hopes that they would kill the twins and silence them forever, much like they did with their father and uncle. So the twins decide to descend into the underworld because they want to take on a another team. They're ready to go. Um, so they descend into the underworld and they pass rivers of pus and blood until they come to a crossroads. At this point, Hunapu plucks out a hair from his shin and creates a mosquito to spy on the lords of Shibalba. And the mosquito bites each lord of the underworld. And as they are bitten, they cry out the names of the other gods. And the twins learn the true names of the gods this way and get some, some spying in with his leg hair mosquito. I want to have leg hair mosquitoes. Get out of here. That's like an incredible, an, an incredible ability. Can you imagine? Just repel people you don't want around. Anyway, boiled down. The way that this like Pokatok tournament was set up was that each day the twins had to play a game against the gods. And then in the evening, they had to serve a, a trial in all these different crazy tribulation houses that they had set up. So for example, their first night, they were in the house of gloom. And the second night, they were in the house of knives. And then they were in the house of cold, the house of jaguars, the house of fire, and eventually the house of bats. Okay, so before I keep talking about all of that, during the day while they played the gods, the twins were purposefully throwing the games. They were purposely losing because they had a very specific plan. They were playing the long game. So they decided to throw the games. So they were appeasing the gods. And then at night, they were pulling all kinds of interesting tricks to survive. On their very last night, they were in the house of bats. 
what this house was, was this enclosed space where there was a bunch of bats that had knife noses. They had blade-like noses. And so these bats were swarming around all night. So what the brothers did was that they got inside of their blow dart, their, I mean, what would you call that? Like the, the shaft of the blow dart. And so they hid inside each of their own shaft. <laughs> this sounds dirty. And at one point, Hunapu, as the night progressed, peeked his head out to see if it had become morning. And by peeking his head out, the bat lord, known as Komazots, decapitated Hunapu. So, Shibalenki has to step in. Now, before I continue, thinking about this allegorically, Shibalenki is the more feminine twin. And he is also the twin that is associated with the jaguar and has cat-like qualities. So I find it very interesting that Shebalenke, he suffers no injuries because his ability to travel between the living world and the underworld. And the quote-unquote more masculine twin is actually the one that needs the assistance in the underworld because it is not his realm. And I also find this story very interesting because their mother is actually the daughter of one of the gods of the underworld, whereas their father is from the above world and was defeated by them. So they are kind of like the perfect duo that is the combination of the living world and the underworld. And they each are kind of a yin and yang, but also them in, in of themselves, they're a yin and yang from their parents' energy. So this is very deep. Okay, so... Shibalenke has a plan. So as morning breaks, Shibalenke summons all the animals because he can communicate with animals. And he tells the animals to bring him fruit. So he starts getting all this fruit delivered to him by different animals of the forest. And one, one rabbit brings him a squash. And Shibalenke places the squash next to the neck of his brother and it fuses to his brother's neck and it takes shape of his brother's head and it can hear and speak and see so again magic he's using his magic so he tells the rabbit to stay close by and to hide in the woods by the ball court and so the next morning the lords of Shibalba, the lords of the underworld, are ready to play a game. And they are using Hunapu's head as the ball. <laughs> Which, like, this is fucking intense. They also don't ask questions, though, when they see Hunapu standing there. So they just accept that Hunapu is alive and well, but they also have Hunapu's head. And the games begin. Shibalenke planned this game out and he uses a diversion. He kicks the head of his brother into the woods and he has the rabbit run away. And so the gods start chasing the rabbit, thinking the rabbit took the head. And instead, Shibalenke retrieves the head quickly and he does a swap. So he puts his brother's head back on his body and he removes the squash 
and turns it into the ball. And as they play with it, it very quickly turns back into a squash. This actually kind of reminds me of the Cinderella tale because the pumpkin turns into the carriage and um, pumpkins and squashes are from the Americas and they were brought over to Europe. So do squashes and pumpkins have shape-shifting abilities that we don't know about? Is that why we carve them into jack-o'-lanterns? <gasps> We'll do an episode on jack-o'-lanterns, actually. We can do that next week. Um, that's a really interesting side note. Anyway, Shibalenke does a switcheroo. The head's back on his brother's body. Now the ball is a squash. And the gods are pissed. Um, they're just fucking pissed because technically the brothers won. And they couldn't kill them. And they couldn't, they couldn't win the last game. And they were just fucking angry. So even though the twins had won, uh, the gods decided to kill them anyway. (laughs) So they built an oven and burned them alive. And the twins had planned for this all along. So the twins completely complied and they knew that their ashes would be dumped in the river afterwards. And once their ashes touched the river, they immediately transformed into catfish and then transformed into young boys. Oh, this is where it gets wild, you guys. So now the twins, Hunapu and Shibalenke, are no longer who they once were, which was young men. They are now young boys, and they are unrecognized by the people of Shibalba, the Shibalbans. And they start entertaining the people of the underworld with dances and little miracles. So they basically started like doing like minstrel magic shows. And so they started like burning things and restoring them back to their natural state. And they started resurrecting the dead. Casual. Are you kidding me? (laughs) What? (laughs) Okay. So... Subsequently, the lords of Shibalba hear about these like famous boys who have been traveling around the underworld, putting on magical minstrel performances and resurrecting the dead casually, which reminds me of the Bakeneko Nekomata, right? Necromancy? Anyway, the lords of Shibalba demand a performance from these boys. So the boys put on a grand show for the lords of Shibalba. So one of them is they kill a dog and they bring it back to life. And then after after that, they go for the grand finale. So Shibalenke cuts up his twin, Hunapu, and he cuts him into a bunch of pieces as a sacrifice for the gods and then brings him back to life, which is a major flex. So at this point, The lords of the underworld are fucking impressed and they demand that the miracle is done upon them. So the boys kill these two most powerful lords of the underworld and they, of course, do not resurrect them. And then they reveal their identities to the Shibalbans and the Shibalbans confess at this point, that they did in fact murder their father and their uncle, and they begged for the mercy. They begged for mercy from the twins. 
And as punishment for their crimes, Shibalba was no longer a place of greatness and would no longer receive offerings from the people who walked the earth. So the twins retrieved the buried remains of their father and uncle, and they left Shibalba, and they climbed to the earth's surface and continued to climb into the sky. And Shabalenke became the moon, and Hunapu became the sun. Ah, beautiful. And which means that the moon is a jaguar entity, right? Because Shebalenki was a jaguar person. And that reminds me of the Senri and how in China they believed that cats got their magical powers from the moon. Here we just have so many overlaps of lore and ideas. And it seems that in almost every culture around the world, cats have incredibly powerful reputations and are associated with the moon and with the night and more specifically with death and the underworld. It all I mean the Kasha as well, right, are on chariots of fire bringing the dead to the underworld. So we have a lot of stories here of them transgressing between worlds. I also want to mention that in the native culture of the Americas, the twin archetype is a very common story all over the Americas, North America, Central America, South America. There are stories of twin duos that are heroes. Some tribes have stories of a male and female duo. Some are both male, but there's still kind of this like yin and yang energy of one being more feminine and one being more masculine. But this story is um, has a lot of its own specifics, but the archetypal idea is, is common and common throughout the Americas. So that concludes part two of cat deities. There are other cat deities. I would love to do more episodes on these. These were the ones that I found the most information on and that I found the most interesting because cats are better than me. I feel so inspired Honestly, especially that last story is just sick as fuck. Um, I really support She Quick, and I just feel like, I don't know, I get tingly inside when I think about these stories because I feel like I've heard them before. Anyway, happy October to everyone. Um, a reminder that Libra season is very intense and often tumultuous because it is about balance and it is an air sign which pertains to the mind. The mind can be hell or the mind can be heaven and the mind um, is a complicated place and this is a great time to find balance, whatever that means for you. Um, whatever balance means for you, I implore you to find that balance because Otherwise, it can be a brutal month. I've been having a hard couple of days. I feel like I've just been so tired. And when I get tired, I feel sad because I feel like I'm not doing all the things that I want to do. But rest is fine and rest is good. And there is no shame in rest. So without further ado, I recommend that everyone goes out and finds a cat and is nice to it so that you get rewarded after the cat turns into a supernatural shape-shifting lord of the underworld. And I hope everyone has a beautiful day and a beautiful October. Out, Peppa.